But just kind of review where we've been. Pastor Sam started us off weeks ago in this series called Church by the Book. And he started us off by going through Church by the Book uh, is in the book, right? We need to look at the Word of God as our guide for how we are to approach church. And so that's where Sam started us off. And as we looked the following week, Sam led us through what it looked like in the leadership of the church, talking about elders. The following week after that, Pastor Al got up. Pastor Al talked about who is the greatest. And he showed us that there were these ones called deacons who serve, but also we are all to serve as Jesus served in the washing of the feet that evening. And then last week, Joe did a splendid job of being able to, to demonstrate what membership in a local gathering of believers looks like. How does that work? And so this week, Lord willing, I am to bring you what it looks like to be a member. So last week, Joe did membership by the book. This week, my sermon series is titled uh, Member by the Book. And so looking a little deeper into, hey, what does it mean to be part of this body of Christ? And so that's what we'll be looking at today. So, but before we begin, why church? Why church? Why do we come to this thing? If you were uh, maybe like me where I grew up, um, maybe where church was a place where, you know what, I'm going to lose sleep if I go to church. Maybe that's what you think of church. It's a place where I'll lose sleep if I go there. Or maybe it's a place that has some beautiful architecture, some Gothic architecture in it. Right, that was church for me when I was growing up. Or maybe it's a place that you should go, but it's a place that you were never good enough to be. Maybe it was a place that you were supposed to give money, and the football coach was the one that was collecting the money when I was young. Or maybe it's a place that you went before you picked up a friend on Saturday night. And so maybe that's what church, well, maybe that's what church is for you. That's what it was for me. But maybe for you, it is a place that you go to every Sunday. You have gone every Sunday. Maybe it's a place where you recharge your spiritual batteries. Maybe it's a place that you meet with friends and catch up with things that have been going on. Maybe it's a place that you go to find business. Or maybe it's a place that you're coming for the first time. Or maybe a place that you can escape an uncomfortable situation. And if you are here and this is your first time, let me just welcome you and say, I am glad that you're here with us this morning. And I would love nothing less than be able to, to, to meet up with you afterwards. So maybe this is what church is for you. So this morning, I have about 40 more minutes to impart upon you some of the knowledge regarding how the biblical church is supposed to look. How the biblical church is supposed to look. And so I'm going to start off with a testimony of two churches. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 first. So if you want to go there. I'm looking at two of the seven churches in Revelations chapter 3. Uh, and I want to look at those because God demonstrates, gives us examples of what church looks like. And so in Revelations chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll look at the first church, which is the church of Sardis. Revelations chapter 3, verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in my sight, 
complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Who wants to be part of this church? What? This place is on fire, man. This place is, has a reputation of being alive. They've got a rock and worship service going on over there. Nothing against Doug. But they've got it going on. In fact, this is a church that you can go to, and you know what? You will never be asked, did you share Jesus Christ? Because, you know, we got some stuff that we haven't gotten done here. And you're not going to go and, and, and ask them about that, right? We have things that are left on down, that works that are not complete. And so this is a place where you can go and you can chill and you can be entertained. And that's the one church. But how does Jesus refer to it? It says that you are dead. So that's one church, the church at Sardis. Let's look at another church down in verse 7 of chapter 3, church of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true Son, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Who wants to be part of that church? I mean, they don't have any power. They got people, you know, Jesus is going to bring people to come and bow down. That's uncomfortable. Right? That's uncomfortable to have someone come and, and bow down to you. All right, come on, come on. I don't want that. And you know, they have, they have a little power. But what does Jesus say about this? This is the church that he loved. And so, as we look at this, people are maybe intolerant. Maybe people are having trouble. What I would say is, is what is your view on church. So we're going to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, all, all kidding aside, the words of Christ demonstrate to us the importance of church to Jesus himself. Jesus is speaking about churches. Jesus is looking at these churches and he's analyzing them. He's looking at them. It is important. If it's important to Jesus, it's important to us, right? We'll get, we won't get to Ephesians chapter 5, but this is another way that Paul tells us about his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is that what church is to you? A place that Jesus has given himself up for. That he might sanctify her, just like the church of the Old Testament, Israel, was set apart, right? And we had all of those laws and regulations that they needed to look at, they needed to live by so that the world would recognize that they were different, they were set apart. Jesus here in Ephesians 5 tells that his church he wants to sanctify. That word sanctify is to set apart, to make like him. We are to be a different people. And he says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
Husbands love this verse, don't you? Honey, I'm just trying to make you better for Jesus. Right? See, right here, Scripture tells me I need to make you better, honey. Well, needless to say, we see a church that is eternally important to God, and at the same time, the church is right now. It's full of people who are a work in progress. None of them are perfect. I'm not perfect. Sam's not perfect. No one is perfect. Not one. I think Ruth Bell Graham does a great job. If you've ever been to the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, plug for middle school, we'll be going there in a few weeks, um, then you've been able to go there and see the gravesite of Ruth Graham Bell. And she understood this idea of a work in progress, and she made it like an analogy of construct, road construction. And if you lived in East Tennessee for any length of time, you know that road construction is everywhere. It's always a state of repair. Well, on Ruth Graham Bell's tombstone, it reads, end of construction, thank you for your patience. She understood what life as a member entailed. She understood that it was a, a work in progress, that she was not perfect, and that she would not be perfect until she returned to be with Christ. So if the church is important to God, then exactly how should it look? It's his church. It's not ours. So let's turn back in our Bibles to the passage that Brother Neil read for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning there, just a quick background on Ephesus, which is not unlike Knoxville. It's not. It's very, very similar. It's northwest of Jerusalem, across the Aegean Sea from Athens. We are close to Athens. <laughs> it's a city on the water. We have the Tennessee River. We are so similar. They, have, they had one of the world's largest theaters, able to seat fifteen to 20,000 people to watch games. We have Neyland Stadium. They had a library. We have McKay's. <laughs> but if you went to Ephesus, the first thing that you would see, even before you got off of the boat on the docks, the first thing that you would see was the seventh wonder of the world, the temple to Artemis, the goddess of fertility. We have West Town Mall. <laughs> so we are just like Ephesus. We are. So this letter that Paul writes, it applies to us just like it applies to this church at Ephesus. And just as a reminder, what has church been talking, what has Paul been talking about in the first three chapters of Ephesus? Right? In chapter 1, he talks about how we have an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance. We have been given this why? Because we are adopted as sons. We are part of his family. He is our God now. He's described to us how we've got this inheritance through the salvation that he provides in chapter 2. It's his gift, not our works. And he also talks about in these chapters that it's not only for the religious people, the Jews, but it's also for those people who've never said a day 
never set a foot a day of their life in a church. It's for the Gentiles as well. It's for everyone. And so that's where Paul's been camping out. He's been trying to talk to this church in Ephesus to talk to them about what church looks like. So again, my message this morning is members by the book. There's an insert in your bulletin you can follow along. And I have two points this morning. Members are to proclaim and members are to promote. And so if we look at uh, the dictionary, to proclaim is to make known publicly, right? It's to uh, tell someone. It's what is it that's going on here? Why is it different? And then to promote, right? To contribute to something, to the growth of something, to add to it, to train it up. So those are the two that we'll be looking at this morning. A member should proclaim and a member should promote. And so the first point, members, proclamation, proclaiming. And so as we look in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You have been called. If you're part of the church, if you're just like you're part of the church in Ephesus, you have been called. Christ has called you to his church. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses, verse 1, and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were. We were children of wrath. We were disobedient folks. That's what Christ called us from, called us out of. This is important. But that's not all. Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So He has brought us out. He has brought you to salvation. He has called you to His church. That is a miracle. It is a miracle. Does your life look the same before this miracle as it does after this miracle? You know, uh, Paul Washer, a preacher that on occasion I'll listen to, he describes it like salvation as a miracle. and He, he describes it like this. It's like me coming to church this morning. And on the way here, I get a flat tire. And as I step out on the roadway to change the flat tire... There's a 30-ton logging truck coming my way. And this 30-ton logging truck runs me over flat. And when I walk into church that morning, somebody says, you're late. Well, I'm sorry, there was this logging truck thing that went on here. That would be a miracle. <clears throat> you died and rose again as Christ died and rose again. Your life would not look the same before and after that logging truck. That's what our salvation is. It's a miracle. Now, 
If you, friend, have not seen America in your life, I am grateful that you're here today with us. And I would love nothing less than for you to ask about this miracle and maybe even ask someone here at this church what that miracle entails and how I can get to know Jesus Christ and be one of his called people. In verses 4 to 6, we see what we, were, we are called to. In verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So as we look at this, we're called to one body. A group of confessors making the right confession, as Joe mentioned last week in his sermon. One spirit, the one truth that is within us, the Holy Spirit who helps us to discern right from wrong, the one we are to be obedient to. One hope, eternal life with God. One Lord, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. One faith, one message of the gospel. One baptism, the entry into the body of followers of God. One God with our heritage, the nation of Israel. The same God that they worshipped is the same God that we worship, is the same God we will always worship. One God, then, now, and forever. So, for those who are followers of Christ, Know that as a member by the book, you have received a personal invitation. Let's call it a birthday invitation. I get those all the time. A birthday invitation. Your spiritual birthday invitation. And God provides it to you. But it's not from just anyone. If you look here, we can see that it's in verse 6, it's from the Father. In verse 5, it's from the Son. And in verse 4, it's from the Spirit. The Trinity right there, boom. Trinity in the message. You know, there's another birthday invitation that came. It happened 45 years ago on Tuesday. So Tuesday, February 12th, 1974, is a special day for this church. That's Sam Polson's spiritual birthday. It's coming up in just a couple of days. Think about the impact that Christ had in that man's life and how it changed him and how he's been able to come and be a member of a body and help them to grow. <clears throat> well, now that we know whose church it is, and how important it is, let's take a look at the next point, proclamation. Church's unity, verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? So when we look at these verses here, we have been born of God, therefore we need to love one another. What is it? How are we to do this? In humility. Knowing who I am before the creator of heavens and earth. Who am I? Being gentle, under control, not harsh. 
being patient on God's timetable, not our own. Bearing with one another in love, putting up with the guy in the seat next to you. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, earlier, I rattled off the names of my children. Now it's time to use one of them as an illustration. And this morning's winner <laughs> is Isaiah Joseph Hobbs. And so when you look at Isaiah, salvation of the Lord Joseph, may Jehovah give increase. What a beautiful name for my three-year-old son. And he's a perfect antithesis of these verses. <laughs> so when I look at humility, no, he is all about, I want, I want a snack. I want juice. I want the iPad. I want that toy. I want it now. I want it my way. All day long. I mentioned I have seven, right? <laughs> He's the antithesis, not the others. Salvation of the Lord. May Jehovah give increase, please. <laughs> I know why he's named that now. Are we eager to maintain? Are we intentional about it? Right? That verse that it says right there. Eager to maintain. Do we look forward to being at church? Do we look forward to being with one another? When we come here acting in this way, do we look forward to even bearing with one another? We are all imperfect. We talked about that. We all make mistakes. We all have challenges. We all have problems. As Doug mentioned, some of us are here. Some of us are here. Do we have an eagerness to go? Because knowing that when we go and be with church, either they'll be praying for us or we'll be able to pray for them. And that's Jesus. That's the church. Do we look forward to that? And it says that the Holy Spirit is uniting us in the bond of peace. Do you get that? The Holy Spirit that's in here, the Holy Spirit that's in every believer, it unites us. It unites us. It brings us together. The church is unity, but the church is also diversity. Verse 7 reads, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In Romans chapter 12, Paul gives us additional insight into this, stating, For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We are the same in the church, but we are all different you know, my testimony of how I came to know Jesus Christ is different than my wife's testimony. Your testimony is likely different than both of our testimony. We all came to Christ in a different way. He has given us gifts also in a different way. He has gifted each one of us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells, tells us that it's a gift from God. Our grace, our salvation is a gift from God. 
God. And so we need to understand that not only are we to be unified in how we act, we all sort of recognize that we're different in our salvation. The church is made of a variety of members with a variety of testimonies and a variety of gifts. Jump down to verses 8 through 10. Now here, Paul puts in, in verses 8 through 10, he gives us this interesting thing, this interesting verses here, so let's just read it. Therefore it says, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So as we read this, we say, wait a minute, Paul, I got the whole calling thing. I understand, right? That's my spiritual birthday. That's, that's when I found Christ. I understand that. And now you're telling me how to live if I'm a Christian. You're telling me to be humble and gracious and patient, all of these other qualities that's listed here. And you're, now you're telling me something about Jesus ascending and descending, and I don't understand. He's quoting a psalm. See, Paul does a great job of giving us this picture, this, this picture of what it's like. And so this Psalm 68, you have to understand, it is a victory hymn. It's written by David. David has just gone forth and he's conquered the Jebusites, which will in the future be the city of Jerusalem. And he's thanking the Lord for the victory. And at the same time, he's leading this victory march, this victory par parade back to his city. Back to his city. And so he is seeing that as a picture of Christ. Christ leading in victory. But that's not all. He says that there's a, a host of captives. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you know anything, there's these things called POWs, or prisoners of war. And so those are captives. And so what are those? Those are the believers that are stranded in enemy camp. Those are the ones who have been captured by the enemy and they've been thrown in prison. And what's happening? David has gone and had victory and he's rescued these prisoners of war and they're marching in this parade. They've been freed. They're coming back. They're coming to the city with David. They're free. And so Paul uses this imagery. How is he using this imagery? He's saying, hey, this is King Jesus. This is just like King Jesus. Through the incarnation, as a baby in the manger, he came to earth. He came to earth. He lived a life. And he was killed on the cross. And he resurrected. He won the battle over sin. He claimed victory. And he ascended on high back into heaven to be seated. But you know what else he did? For those of us who were here on earth as prisoners of war, he has set us free. He has set us free. That's what Paul is picking at right there in that passage. Church, do you realize that Christ, his victory over sin is for you? He gave himself up for you you are no longer a prisoner. 
You are now free because of King Jesus. So, the church is victorious in verses 8 through 10. But that's not all. It also says he gave gifts to men. So, one of the other things about battle is, is once you've conquered, not only do you reclaim those who were prisoners and you bring them back from the fold, but you also get the spoils of battle, right? All of the, 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 col- the gold coins, the necklaces, whatever it might be, the spoils, the treasures that you get, you bring back with you. And what did King Jesus do? He gave this to us. He gave us all gifts. If you are a follower of Christ, you are gifted. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He gave us gifts. So he's about to tell us, church, I saved you and you need to be humble and gentle and I rescued you out of war and I gave you gifts. And he's about to tell us what those are and how to use them. That's the picture that he's painting. And so us as gift receivers, what are we to do with this gift? We are re-gifted, right? That's what we do. We re-gift. Back in the Christmas of 2008, I received a box of chocolate, a large piece of chocolate from my wife's Aunt Judy, who lives in New Hampshire. She had sent it to us as a gift. And so we had this box of chocolate and uh, you know, it was a hard year at the Hobbs household. And so um, we decided that with my parents coming, we were a little light on the gifts. And so uh, we'll just take this. I mean, it's still in its cellophane packaging, so we've never opened it. It's brand new. You know, we'll just rewrap this thing in Christmas paper and we'll give it to my parents. You know? So Christmas morning, and they, they came and they got this present and they opened it up. Oh, thank you. Because they love chocolate. If you know my parents, they love chocolate. And um, they opened it up and then they tore off the cellophane packaging and they opened up the flap of the box and pulled out this large bar of chocolate to Julie and Patrick. (laughs) From Aunt Judy. That was fun. (laughs) But you know what? That's also a perfect picture, isn't it? Because we receive gifts from Christ. And you know what? We're supposed to pretty them up. And we're supposed to give them to other people. And when they receive them, they're not to look at us. They're to look at Aunt Judy. And know that it's come from the gift giver from Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. So, members, the church is a church that's victorious. The next point, members promoting, right? So we talked about members proclaiming. Now we talk about members promoting or promotion, member promotion. So as we look at this, we can look into verse 11. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. 
And so when we look at these, these are different positions that he's given to the early church. He's given them apostles, right? Which are those that come forth and we can confirm them. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 tells us that an apostle, right, is someone who performs signs, wonders, and mighty works, okay? So we have to understand those are apostles. Those were there during that day and time of the church growing. And so that's what they were. There were prophets. These were people that would speak revelation, like John the Baptist, right? They would call him a prophet. Or Elijah was a prophet, or Isaiah was a prophet. And then you can also say, hey, prophets are also those people who retell that, that revelation from God. So we looked at as preachers, okay, that was also given to the church. Evangelists, these are ones that are particularly gifted in sharing the gospel. And God has really used them in a mighty way to bring people to know Jesus Christ. And then we have shepherds or pastors and teachers. These are folks that are teaching and leading a local assembly and providing oversight. And if you're like me in student ministries, this is the annoying adult because they want you to actually learn something. But these are offices that represent the gift that God has given to you. And it's to use to facilitate discipleship. You are to be a disciple. You are to be as Christ. Right? And so as we look at that, we are a church of discipleship. When you look at these positions, these positions are given to the church. Why? So that they can share this gift. And why would we share this gift? It's so that we can grow in Christ. We'll get to that in just a moment. So that we can all become evangelists. We can all become teachers. We'll see that later on. That's the gift. But also the church is intentional. So the church is discipleship, but the church is also intentional. In verses 12 and 13, why are these gifts given? They're given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and, the knowledge, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we are to be equipping the church in a work of ministry. I had a gentleman who, uh, I, when I came here 11 years ago, there was a gentleman by the name of, of Frank um, who had been here for quite some time, and I, I, I love that brother dearly, and he invested five years of his life on Saturday mornings with me. Five years of his life. At 6.30 in the morning on Saturdays, I would go to Perkins over here on Kingston Pike, and he would walk through the scriptures with me. He was intentional. He and the other five of us that were there, in total six of us, he was discipling us intentionally. And he had an intentional purpose for this. He told us. He was very, very, very truthful, very transparent with us. He did not want to disciple us forever. He wanted us to go and start our own discipleship groups. That was his goal. And the Lord, thank you for, for men like Frank, building up the body of Christ. You know, Sam's used the, the ladder as an illustration, right? And just think of it as, as you're thinking about the different rungs on the ladder. You're thinking, okay, I'm here, or maybe I'm here. Or wherever you might be on that ladder, it's to take the next step, to be intentional about, I am going to take a step. I am going to be intentional. I am going to go up that ladder to whatever that next point is toward Jesus Christ. So we are also an intentional, intentional church. It's for equipping the members of the church. But also the church is truth, looking at verses 13 and 14. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature that is fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So what are we to do? What steps can we take on that ladder? We can try to all attain the unity of the faith. We talked about unifying, coming together in faith. What was that faith? That was the gospel message. We can come together on the gospel message, but that's not all. Also, to attain the knowledge of the Son of God, to learn who the Son of God was. You know, Jesus had some words about this. It's called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus told us this. This is what we are to do. Teach them all. We are to teach them. We are teachers and we are learners. There are some that are disciples. There are some that are disciples. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, let us never forget that the message of the Bible is addressed primarily to the mind, to the understanding. This is a book of knowledge. This is a book of the knowledge of God. We are to learn it, learn all of it. How do we know when we get there? We are lifelong learners. But here specifically, it says to mature manhood. It says that we are to be men. We are to rise up, or women. We are to, to rise ourselves up, to grow up, not continue to be little children. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14 say, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Have you all become dull of hearing? Am I going on too much? Merriam-Webster defines dull as stupid. So um, hopefully, I'm not calling you stupid, okay? <clears throat> For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So the writer of Hebrews here is calling out a people saying, you've been going to church, you should be a teacher by now. That's what he's saying. He's calling them out. Why haven't you grown? We are to be training ourselves. Training ourselves in what? In discernment. For discerning good from evil. No longer being children. Because we have set upon learning. We no longer can be deceived or lured by false doctrine. We recognize cults for what they are now. We won't be allured into fads. We have to prepare ourselves against the wiles of the devil. Verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. Church is relational. Church is relational. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Do you see that? We're just speaking the truth in love. A brother of mine said to me this week that the most difficult thing to do as a Christian is to speak that truth in love. 
And I hear that. He's right. I know he's right because James tells me he's right. James chapter 3 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James tells us that that's the hardest thing to do. Christ is the head and the unified, diversified, maturing members are the body. As we grow together, we construct a picture of Jesus' love in verse 16 to those around us. Verse 16, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, that's us, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you know that, church? When we work together, we're a picture of love to the area around us, to our Cedarbrook. We are a picture of love to them. So let's do a quick assessment as we prepare to close here. Let's do an assessment of the church at Ephesus. Well, based upon what we see here from from Paul's writings, we can probably ascertain that it's a prideful church. It's short on its fuse, not helping one another, lacking direction and leadership, young in the faith, not working together and saying mean things to one another. It's no wonder that Paul started off the letter by reminding them whose church they were a member of. Being a church by the book will help you in this endeavor. Being a member by the book will help you. If you attend our Life at West Park membership class, uh, on there there's some practical ways for you to be a member of the church and what that looks like. And number four, I'm going to read to you here. I agree with the help, with the help of the Holy Spirit to live together in Christian love with my fellow members and to present a testimony of unity that honors God. I agree to build up other believers in the faith, to live out with them the mission, vision, and core values of our church and to lovingly but firmly hold others accountable when they do not and and expect the same from me. I agree to encourage other members in Christian love, to pray for them, to pursue, pursue unity and to always be ready for the reconciliation if I have a conflict with one another. That's taken right here from this passage. Members by the book proclaim. They make known who it is that called them. Members by the book, they also promote others within because of what they have already proclaimed. Now, there's one more view of the member that I want to take a look at. That's the member in the mirror. I've got some questions for you to ask yourself. Will I recognize how God places importance on His church? Will I change how I view the church? Will I recognize that the church is not a building 
but his gathered followers. It's people. It's not an hour and a half on Sundays out of 168 hours in the week. It's all the people all the time. Not just Sundays. Well, I recognize that the church is a commitment to Christ and his people. Well, I recognize that as a member, I have a gift from God that is necessary for use in growing the body. You have been particularly gifted by God to work in this church if you're a follower of Christ. And to not use that means that you're not helping the body grow. You're not using what Christ has provided to you. Perhaps some of you are ready to take that next step. To start making it more than just one hour on Sundays. And let me tell you what's about to happen. Satan is going to try to stop you. As you walk out, a stranger, your boss, a neighbor, a friend, a child, a spouse, a parent, someone's going to throw, oh, so you're all spiritual now? You hear a good sermon and then now you want to be different? Pray. Pray. Pray for God to give you strength as you become a member of His church. Don't give in. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Job read to us last week, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Every day. Church is every day. Church is every day. All of us loving one another is every day. Every day. John Owens put that same concept in a different way. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Perhaps some of you aren't sure that you can do it. You say, well, I don't like the people here at church. I don't either. These people hold me accountable. They make me be more like Jesus. But these people are also created in his image. And I love them because Christ loves them. Maybe I don't want to come. I want to be entertained. You do you and I'll do me. And Well, come see me after service. Let me tell you who the Lord Jesus is. Maybe you don't have the skill or the strength. I would submit to you the words of Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. We can all do it. Paul tells us later in Ephesians 4 that as believers we need to put off the old ways. We need to make changes. There's some things that 
I do, that we do, that are not holy. We can find them. Put those off. And he tells us to go put on the new life. Well, examine your life. I hope, you, I hope you've got the point. How do we begin looking like Jesus? We do like he did. You go spend some time with a bunch of people. You get to know them real well. You open the scriptures with them. And you pray. That's how you become the church. That's what the church is. So, there was a gentleman by the name of D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody had a difficult life as a youngster. He had five brothers and sisters, and then his father died, and then his mom had twins right after, because I think he was one of eight. And he did not grow up in a Christian home, and when his father died, he was the breadwinner of the family, and that meant mom had nothing. And they, the banks came, the creditors came, and they took all that he had, took all that they all had. This forced D.L. Moody to have to go out and look for work at a young age. And so he looked around his, his town where he grew up, but he couldn't find any work, and so he had to move to a neighboring city, Boston. And looking there, he had trouble finding work, but eventually he went to his uncle who lived there, and his uncle gave him a job. But it was a job with one condition. You have to go to church on Sundays. And so Moody said, okay, uncle, I need a job so bad, I'll do that. I'll go to church with you. And so Moody went to church, and, went, and there he joined a Sunday school class, and he had been going there for a time. And the church was there. And his Sunday school teacher got a burden for him, began to pray for him. And that burden and that prayer turned into a conviction that that Sunday school teacher needed to get up and go. And that Sunday school teacher went to Boston, went to downtown Boston. He found the little shoe store where his uncle had given him work. And he walked by the first time because he needed to get himself ready. He needed to prepare himself for what he was about to do. And that Sunday school teacher walked in and said, Dwight, I need to talk to you. And so he talked to Dwight while he was working in the shoe store. And at the age of 16 years old, D.L. Moody was saved because a member of the body cared and loved. Let me ask you, church, as we go to prayer here, will you look at the church as a body of believers in Christ? Will you understand that this body is called by Christ and I am just a member of it? Will you take the next step and go forth to grow in Christ? Let's pray.